Hello, Theology in the Raw listeners. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast. If you want to come to one of my speaking events in the fall, I will be in Indianapolis, Indiana on September 5th, Fort Wayne, Indiana, September 16th and September 17th. Um, I will be in Richmond, Virginia, September 24th and September 23rd. Not in that order. <laughs> 23rd and then the 24th. I will be in New York City, September 27th and September 28th. I will be in Colorado Springs, October 8th and October 9th and several other cities. You can check out centerforfaith.com, go to the events page. And most of these events, in fact, all the ones that I mentioned, you have to register for. So please do that very soon that though those events are right around the corner, especially the one in Indianapolis. So if you want to come to that event, you got to register like right now or maybe tomorrow or maybe the next day, but don't wait too long. Otherwise you might not um, be able to attend the event. So I have on my show today, a guy who I've never talked to in person. I've only recently become aware of who Mark Sayers is. And by recently, I mean like in the last, I don't know, a year, year and a half. In fact, as you'll hear in the podcast, I was living in Melbourne, Australia for about five weeks, a year and a half ago. And Mark is a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. And I didn't know who Mark was at that time. I am kicking myself because Mark, as you will see, is he's just, I mean, obviously he's incredibly intelligent and a clear thinker, a provocative thinker, a prophetic thinker, but he's also a pastor at heart. And he's, he's one of the most able voices I have listened to. Who's able to think comprehensively and clearly about our cultural moment and able to help guide Christians in how to think through where we are in our cultural, political and societal moment. Um, he's just, I mean, several, there were several times in the podcast where he was just talking and talking and pulling together different things and saying things I've never even heard of. And I was sitting there kind of stunned. I was like, oh my gosh, I just have a thousand more questions and I have, I'm just, I'm just soaking this in. So I hope you do the same. This was such a fascinating conversation. Please welcome to the show for the first time and hopefully for the first of many times, the Mark Sayers. Okay, we are live with uh, Mark Sayers. Um, I am so excited about this podcast. I've got several, we, we have several mutual friends, Mark. I don't know if you know, uh, John Mark Comer uh, was probably the biggest yeah. one. Um, but several of my pastor friends have really uh, been following you longer than I have. I've only recently come across your work, but have been so like impressed with your ability to pull so many different strands of you know, culture and faith and history and all these things together so well and so clearly. So I, I want to get into that and talk about some of your books, but why don't you just give a brief background of who you are, what you do, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah. Well, I'm Mark Sayers from Melbourne, Australia, and um, my primary thing is um, I'm a pastor of a church here in Melbourne called Red. Um, but then also, I guess I sort of write and speak and try and lead into, I guess, really the interface between faith and culture, um, which for me is like, 
you know, because I'm as a local pastor, I'm interested in how you do discipleship. How do you, mm-hmm. you know, do evangelism? How do you lead in this place? And I think that's where it led me into that. And then I think I've been able to share with others some of the stuff that I've learned from those okay. spaces. And you've written how many, half a dozen books or so, or? Uh, seven now. Yeah. Seven. Okay. And w- uh, tell us about the one you're currently w- working on, and maybe we can use that as a springboard to chase down some thoughts. Yeah. So I, I just wrote a book called Reappearing Church, which comes out August the 3rd. And I wrote a book um, a couple of books ago called Disappearing Church. And Disappearing Church was really about the rise, I think, of post-Christianity and, and what that meant for the church. And, and I think like maybe sort of like 2000, when did I write? Like 2015, 2016, there was a real sense of like, which I think there is in a lot of places still of almost like, oh my goodness, the hugeness of this secular moment. And um, but I've, I've actually rediscovered a, se- a sense of hope about what God could do at this moment. Um, so I think it's a reframing of what if, what, what if the rise of post-Christianity is actually an opportunity for the church in the right. West? Well, I mean, I, I've thought, I've often thought that like, you know, I, I know in, in America and especially in religious uh, conservative circles in America, people kind of bemoan the secularization of our culture and how America is, is losing its quote unquote, Christian values, you know, and, and, you know, there's a debate whether those values were ever really there, but, um, but I don't know, like I look back and it seems like the pre-Constantine era of the church, even though it was a time of persecution was also a time when, when, when our faith thrived, you know? So I, I don't know if, if the church thrives very well in a quote unquote Christianized somewhat moral culture. I just don't know if historically that's always been when our faith has thrived. Is, is that a naive assumption? Or have you thought about that, the kind of pre-Constantine, post-Constantine, and now moving away from our kind of Christianized culture? I mean, this is kind of the work you do. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's like, um, I mean, the danger is that when things are comfortable, success can be a threat. And, huh. you know, I think you look at a sports team, you know, as soon as they've won a few championships, they can start to get, complacent and the rock can often set in and that can be disguised and you know i think particularly if you look at the anglosphere the english-speaking countries after world war ii uh, particularly there was a real high point for the church and i think there was a lot of good things that happened but then also i think some assumptions you know set in and um you know, I think we're dealing with some of them coming apart now. So, I mean, I look at the pre sort of Constantinian era at the, you know, when the church was in its early phases as a combination of a few things. One, you had, you know, obviously you had the work of the spirit and, and Christ yeah. and the apostles, you know, setting up the church. But then what you also had was just this coming together of a number of sociological historical factors. You had the Roman empire, which mm-hmm. I had set out um, this global empire really uh, which had a lot of problems with it. But then there's also this setting up of an infrastructure, um, the Roman road, the Roman imperial system. Mm. And it's interesting, the gospel seems to come at this time where that's set up, there's still some level of peace in the Roman Empire, yet it's also this this serious period of dissatisfaction is entering into the empire. You know, you yeah. have, um, it's fragmenting, you know, the sort mm. of high point of, you know, Caesar's rule is now splitting and, you've got all this sort of social unraveling happening. So it's this perfect mix. And so I sort of, if you look forward, if you look at say the great awakenings or revivals, 18th century, even some of the stuff that happened in the medieval times, um, 18th century, 19th century, again, you have this social dislocation, intensified globalization, which pushes people out of the places where they've found home and found a sense of meaning 
and people, you know, have, have these new frameworks. I think George Hunter talked about uh, people in transitions are open to the gospel. And he's talking about that from a personal evangelistic thing. You know, we see at our church, we are running alpha at the moment and we ran it last time. We're going to do it again in Farsi and English because there's so many Iranian people in Melbourne um, who have left, you know, because of the revolution, they've left, they've come to Melbourne, they're questioning everything and, and many are coming to faith. So when you have transitions in your life, people are open to faith. Well, I'm sort of taking that concept and say, what does that look like at a social cultural level? Um, so I think we're entering an even more intensified version of that. There are cultural dislocations at multiple levels. It's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all across the world. Like mm. India, it's happening. India has a right-wing populist uh, who's pushing into in Narendra Modi, who's pushing into um, you know, an anti-foreigner, anti-minority viewpoint, which is making the country really? question what its identity, what is it to be Indian? This is happening everywhere. This is happening in South America. This is happening in Europe. This is even happening in Asia Pacific. Um, China has a, is it an incredible turning point um, with also with a, you know, a, a, a authoritarian populist, you could say leader, Xi Jinping, who has a platform called China Dream, which is getting back to what China was always about. Um, so you see these things around the world. So everybody, everybody has their own Donald Trump then. <laughs> it, 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 or he's essentially copying. So, so Xi Jinping had China dream before make America yeah. great again. Wow. Um, so I think what a lot of these leaders are doing, and a few people have men- noticed this, I think a lot of these leaders are opportunists. I mean, to go on Donald Trump for one second, there's a fascinating video of Donald Trump when there was, I think it was the Independence Party, and he ran against Pat Buchanan. Um, and he attacks Pat Buchanan and, he, and, and he's saying, I think your associations with right wing figures are very suspect. I'm paraphrasing. I don't like, you know, you're hanging around with a lot of Nazis. It almost seems like, and you're like, hang on, this is what's said of him. So that says to me, there's an opportunist there. Um, and I think a lot of these leaders are opportunists, but what are they opportunist about? They're opportunist about the fact that in a highly globalized world where we're pushed into increasing isolation by technology, people have a meaning deficit. Hmm. So I see that as an opportunity for the gospel. If there's people around the world going, wow, like, who am I? Everything's up for question from nationality to sexuality, to identity, to gender, to technology, to meaning, to hyper-individualism. That's a world where the big touchstones that humans find meaning are actually in flux. And and, and at those moments, there's almost always religious renewals. I have so many questions. Let let me, before I forget this one, Yeah. Oftentimes, history repeats itself, and you kind of alluded to that earlier. So if you, if you, as you look at our specific cultural moment, and specifically where the, where the church is, let's just say where the Western church is in this cultural moment, what other time in history, what other cultural moment in history looks like this, where we can learn from this situation, and where is it going to, where are we going to end up? I mean, that's kind of a, a prophetic question, I guess, but yeah. yeah. I mean, again, too, I think, I think there's, you know, was it, was it Mark Twain? I can't remember who said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've been looking a lot at the 18th century. Um, and I think the 18th century, what you have is you have a British empire, uh, which is globalizing. It's rising in technology. Uh, you know, you have like sailing ships connecting the world. Um, you have the move over the next century into steamers, which brought the world closer together, and the telegraph, which was the internet um, hmm. of the industrial era. 
you have this incredible moment where people for since the medieval period have been arranged in parish boundaries. You had these very set, almost since the Reformation, religious systems. And then they all start breaking down. So people are on the move. So the 18th century to the 19th century was a time of mass migration. And I think people miss how much migration is one of the driving forces in the world at the moment. Interesting. And so you have people who don't, no longer fit into uh, parish boundaries. So for example, Australia is just a classic. You know, you have near my house, um, about a few miles that way is a small stone chapel made by Methodists um, who would come from downtown Melbourne. You know, I mean, it was literally like going to Mars for them, you know. <laughs> but the fact that that's there on the other side of the planet, talk, you know, speaks of a, a missionary movement that came out of this time of intense social, social dislocation. Wesley, you know, was like, I'm not going to preach in the parish boundaries. I'm actually going to go and preach in the fields. Um, so the 18th century was really an early globalization. Um, mm. And you can trace all these movements back to in East Africa, to Malaysia, Singapore, India, the United States, the Western frontier of the United States. Mm -hmm. All of those moments go back to the social dislocation that happened at that time, technological rise, global politics. Um, and we saw this incredible great awakening. I mean, just even, even Jonathan Edwards, it's fascinating. I was reading Marsden's biography mm. and he talks about the fact that just before the revival that happened there, you had a transition from almost a sort of older sense of agriculture um, where people had so these inherited farms, all of a sudden the economy was sort of changing. And so young people weren't um, uh, like they couldn't just inherit the farm and get married because they couldn't afford to do it. So they're delaying marriage until 30. All of hmm. a sudden they start sleeping around. Um, <laughs> there was even, they even talk about self-harm in those communities really? amongst young people. Fascinating depression. When you read it, when you read, oh, this is actually what's going on. So the young people actually dislocated their adolescence and then this re renewal comes amongst those young people. Absolutely fascinating. Like, you know, people don't realize these factors are at play. Um, so I think we look often at the past and go, oh, it's so different to us. Everyone was sort of like a nerdy square Christian. Yeah. But when you look back, I mean, there was just before sort of the Wesleyan renewal, um, and, you know, Edwards and all that. In, in St. Paul's Cathedral, I don't know what year it was, but St. Paul's Cathedral in London, this huge, incredible building, yeah. had six people turn up to Easter service. In the 18th yeah. century, Australia was called a post-Christian society. The first really? church in Australia was burnt down in, in the 18th century. Um, so a lot of these factors in the West have always been there. So this is fascinating. So you're saying, and, and I want to I mention again, you said the telegraph... And you said in passing, you know, the internet of the 1800s, 1800s or 18th century, 1800s. Oh, 18th century. Oh, it's, yeah, you sort of get into the 19th century. So you sort of get this from the 18th century into the 19th century, okay. this rise of technology. It's probably more than 19th century was the telegraph. I, I've often talked about the printing press as kind of the internet of 500 years ago. Would you say, I mean, and I think that's, you know, we could agree just the exponential you know, spread of information and literacy and everything. But I never thought about the telegraph. You're saying the telegraph was another kind of spike in that spread of information in a context when there's globalization, technology, yes. post-Christian culture, the church trying to find its way. And then on the other side of that is revival and renewal. So you're saying yes. in as much as our situation imitates or what was the phrase you use? Not, not repeats, but, um, 
Uh, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. It rhymes. In as much as our situation now is rhyming with that situation, would you predict, I mean, if, if uh, a, a prophetic kind of renewal on the other side of this, is that what you're kind of hoping yes. for? Is this what your book is touching on? Or? That's what I'm hoping for. And, and to, to, I just want to preface that with one thing. Like, I think what, what you notice is you never have, it's rare that you have this culture-wide, everyone becomes a Christian. You do have these incredible moves, you know. Um, but what you tend to have in revivals and renewals is actually a, a bringing together of a remnant that becomes significant. Okay. Um, and, I mean, you know, the Wesleyan revival profoundly changed the face of England. Yet at the same time, you still have this very polite cultural Christianity. You know, the, the enthusiasts were still called enthusiasts and Methodists were insults, you know. Um, <laughs> so I think we can, we, can, we can fall into this trap because of the, what I would say is the contemporary view of public relations. So what I mean by that is this belief that Soren Kierkegaard talked about this idea that was emerging in the 19th century in his book, This Present Age, that, that there is a public, that, hmm. that you know, polling says 97% of Americans now believe A. Now, do they? <laughs> and, it, and it gives you this myth that somewhere there's, there's the American public's walking around and operates like an individual with one singular mind. Yeah. People believe so many different things. And, you know, one of the things since, particularly since the election of Donald Trump and Brexit is we, we realize that people don't even tell the truth in polling anymore. So <laughs> I think there's a mistake that we can think about revival and renewal like, oh, that'll be when 92% of Americans right. or 98% of Australians, again, are biblical Christians. It's always a remnant. Having said that, that's my preface. Okay. I do think there is, I think it's already happening um, in some ways, particularly amongst migrant populations, which we're not registering in the West, there is significant renewal movements happening. Huh. And, and I think we're moving to a point where particularly if you look at some of the factors, I mean, you look, number one, that the dominant household in increasingly across the West and in the West most influential uh, environments, you know, I think it's like in the city of Hamburg in Germany, it's just under 50% of people live single person alone in a house. Huh. Scandinavia is becoming normative. Melbourne and Sydney in the inner cities, it's becoming normative. There's places in the United States, San Francisco, places like this where that's normative. That's never happened before. And that, that is a, a demographic disaster um, coming. Why, why, why so? Why so? I'm curious. Okay, because you don't pass on the house to anyone. Huh. And you don't replicate after yourself. So basically, knowledge, wealth, and I'm not saying these are good things. I'm just saying these are sociological realities. Okay. Knowledge, wealth, you pass on. You pass on those values to the next person. So for example... If you have like it, in, what's happening in Melbourne is people talk about millennial values. So millennial values, you know, they have all these things. Are they more progressive? Blah, blah, blah. There was a survey done here by one of our newspapers and it interviewed our two largest migrant groups, people born in India, people born in China, millennials. They have more children. They get married. They're more educated. They have more money. They're better savers. They vote more conservative and they're more religious. Now, if you've got those two groups competing, one's going to win. Um, now I don't see, you know, people would use that as an argument against immigration. I think, well, maybe bring it on <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if, if that's a renewing. So you see that. So basically you've got a, the contemporary progressive Western individualistic life, individualistic life script is a one generation phenomenon, hmm. um, because it doesn't actually have a view to live on beyond itself. 
So even that creates social dislocation. Some of the social dislocations that we've seen um, in politics are that people who, and this is nothing against people, this is just sociological fact, that people who don't have children tend to vote more extreme left or right really? because they're not thinking forward. There's not that moderating viewpoint. Um, so, you know, these things I see creating increasing social dislocation going forward. I think we're just in phase one. That's interesting. Wow. Um, I, I want to shift gears just slightly because I mean, obviously you're from Australia, you're Australian, yet you speak, uh, I mean, in America, you speak in, in Europe, the UK. Um, can, you, can you give us a snapshot for the similarities and differences between the American culture, the Australian culture, in particular, the intersection between faith, faith, and, faith and culture? Um, I mean, America and, and Australia have a fascinating parallel history. Yeah. Um, you know, really Australia, in terms of white settlement, is kicked <clears throat> off because of the War of Independence. Um, Britain was dumping a lot of, well, really, you know, convicts, which is the term people know, but many of them were really indentured workers. Hmm. Uh, there was a fascinating um, debate amongst the Clapham sect as, you know, should we call these people slaves? And because of some of the racial elements that a lot of them were white, not all, um, you know, whether they use that word. So when the War of Independence happened, um, where does Britain dump these people? Because again, to going back to that 18th century social dislocation, the cities were being flooded as feudalism ended and agriculture ended. People come into the cities and all of a sudden there's homeless people everywhere and poverty, et cetera, et cetera. So they're trying to do this mass sort of social, you know, like really get rid of them. Um, so United States begins in many ways as a protest um, against Europe. It happened, that means religiously and politically. So there's a sense of pilgrims yeah. and Puritans and different religious people coming to the United States, but also politically as well. Um, Simon Sharma points, you know, makes the argument, he doesn't use this language, that in some ways America is Britain 2.0 and some of its more liberal political traditions. Um, <laughs> so you've got this sense of utopianism, yeah. both religiously and politically, and America is more based on an idea. And so, you know, they get off the Mayflower, have a prayer meeting. Australia is these convicts coming down. Australia, America begins as a utopia. Australia begins as a dystopia. Huh. Um, America has a prayer meeting. Australia, the, the men's ship comes in and the female ship comes in uh, and the female ship is primarily sex workers. And then they send them off into the bush with rum and it's essentially an orgy. <laughs> so that's the differences in the countries. Um, so, but interestingly, the, the two countries grow um, and actually are very similar today. I think, you know, after Canada, Australia be one of the most similar countries yeah. to, to, you know, I mean, you've been there. Uh, Melbourne's maybe a little bit different, but, um, but I would say that there's a much longer um, uh, sceptical view of religion in Australia, primarily okay. because of convicts. You had sex workers, British soldiers who were being punished and convicts and criminals from the lower classes. Yeah. They were the three most un unchurched people group. Yeah. you know, people groups um, in the you know, British Empire at yeah. the time. So you also have a, an enlightenment, much more British enlightenment government system in Australia who are much more, so they built a science sort of research centre before they built a church. Mm. Um, so you have these moves. So that doesn't mean, you know, faith in Australia has always been seen as negative, but there seems to be, particularly in how the story is told, a much more innate suspicion of faith. And I think it's <laughs> very different to the United States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I was there, I noticed similarities and differences. In fact, the way, and this might be totally artificial, but, you know, I lived in the UK for three, a little over three years and, and still have connections there. And, um, 
has spent time a couple of times in Australia and have friends that are Australian. And, and it seems like Australia is almost like somewhere between America and the UK in terms yes. of how the conservative and liberal, the political scheme and how that interacts with uh, the church. And, you know, I was surprised at how, um, for lack of better terms, conservative the, the church is in Australia, but maybe, you know, in a place like Mel- Melbourne, it's kind of like the San Francisco of Australia, right? I mean, very multicultural, very kind of progressive in many ways, it seems like. And, and the churches there, you know, I spoke, I spoke at a church there on sexuality and, and they were, they were very excited to, to have me, but they, they, the warning was, you know, they said, Hey, just so you know, there's a lot of hyper conservative people here that if, you know, if you don't just condemn, 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 they're going to think you might be, you know, on a slippery slope, you know, towards liberalism, even, even if you're citing scripture or whatever. And, and, um, I, I know Sydney has its own kind of the, the Americans talk about the Sydney Anglicans as being kind of the, the fighting fundies of, of, of Australia. I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, but yeah, I, I did notice, yes, yeah, a lot of overlap, so when you when you think through and look at the American church, it's pretty, I guess this is where I'm going, it's pretty easy for you to kind of imagine that relationship because you're not too far from that where you are. Would that, would that be pretty correct? I, I, think, I think I still find it profoundly different and okay. dislocating, to be honest. Um, so I think like you, you will have, I think, I think also like, I think what a lot of Americans probably don't realize is that American conservatism in many ways is very different to Australian conservatism okay. um, and British conservatism. I mean, an argument could be made if, if American conservatives were really conservatives, they would be reinstating the king. Um, <laughs> so, 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 um, you know, you know um, so bring back the British. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> the jokes aside, I, I think that Australian conservatism, so there's an element where people will be theologically conservative, like you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so for example, you know, and like, it depends what church you're at. Um, you know, probably, yeah, and denominations would be different. So like the experience you just had wouldn't be as much my experience. You know, it's one in Melbourne that you've got, you have both extremes, you know. Okay. So, um, you know, so some Anglican circles and so on. But it, I've been at things where I've been with very conservative theological Anglicans. Okay. Um, who then will switch to a conversation where there's a complete critique of market capitalism. Really? Um, okay. And an attacking of the American presidency. And um, the idea that you have guns would just be yeah. abhorrent, like, um, and, and militarism. And, yeah. you know, so, so there's some theological, that's what I find interesting. There's theological, I'll, I'll sit down with, say, people who like maybe evangelicals, and I'm like, okay, here's this theological cause. But then you get off that, and I'm just like yeah. totally dislocated. Now I know about it, but I think it's still surprising. So, so in America, um, there there, there's such, there's a, there's a lot of unanimity between social conservatives, political conservatives, and religious conservatives. Like, if you're yes. a Christian conservative theologically, you are going to be a political conservative as well. Whereas I, I've yeah. noticed in the UK, and what you're saying in, in Australia too, that that wouldn't necessarily happen. I mean, I've yeah. I remember I was in the UK a few years ago in 2016, and you know, I, I was with a broad range of Christians, but some of which would be like head covering hyper-conservative brethren, right, who were, I mean, appalled that American Christians could actually consider voting for Trump. So here you have yes. hyper-right-wing theological conservative people who are, would be either moderate or at least nowhere near kind of the right-wing political conservative, where in America it's one and the same. Is that, yes. Would that be a big difference between these three continents? Absolutely. Like... Um... You know, so for example, like guns in Australia wouldn't yeah. seem like a conservative issue. Like right. that's a very liberal issue. Like if you're being conservative, you have restraint on that. 
and that creates social disorder. So why are you then just giving them to everyone? That 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 or yeah. welfare or or the death penalty? Like Australia, you know, Australia got rid of the death penalty in the nineteen sixties, hmm. um, and that would just seem like an extremely excessive thing to do. That's so really, again, yeah, so much of this in terms of social conservatism is is how you look at it, and and probably that's where Australia has. Again, you're right. Australia's in between America and the United Kingdom, yet some of it would be influenced by British. It'd be more like Britain where you'll have people who are, you know, evangelicals, but then will vote the Labor Party. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now, so I have to ask you, I mean, you've referenced several pretty high powered scholarly books. You're obviously thinking at a pretty high intellectual level. Um, and I don't want to, this is going to be a stereotype, but I mean, but you're a pastor. now. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not a university professor. So can you, can you explain to me maybe your, your desire, your background passion for both thinking theologically, intellectually, sociologically, and wanting to be a pastor? Or, 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 or are you like applying for, uni, you know, academic posts at, the, at university? <laughs> you no, know, or no? no, I mean, I only have a high school certificate. Um, are you serious? And, yes. Um, <laughs> so, so I... I struggled at high school and just got through my final year. Um, wow. My principal wanted me to leave. Um, <laughs> not because I was being like a bad boy, but just didn't feel I could academically get there. And um, I think God really came into my life when I was 18. And I did go start studying at seminary. I, sorry, I studied, I, I did advertising, but left it at university. Um, and I became a, an intern with the Salvation Army. Um, really? And so I sort of was doing stuff with, you know, homeless youth and then they would pay for you to do some seminary studies. So I, I did some, but I failed and just huh. couldn't do it academically. And um, yeah. And then, but I think the whole time just fascinated and reading and trying to learn about culture. And I think it's one of those things where the first subject I ever did at, at seminary was on evangelism. And they did the first lecture, the guy just gets up and does this Western culture history. And like talking about the enlightenment Renaissance, I'm lost. I'm like, I, I'm bad at high school. What the heck's going on? And so I just thought I've got to actually work hard at this. So I went back and started reading and I assumed everyone in that room knew who Kant was or, you know, like I said, I'm just like, Oh, okay. So, so it's almost like you, you, you work harder when you presume everyone else is better than you and yeah. knows everything. So I just started reading in my spare time and working yeah. hard and making a discipline. And then you sort of start to go, Oh, hang on. People are listening to me hmm. and Oh, okay. Um, so it just became part of my personal discipline interest. Um, and I think in Melbourne too, there is a sense where Melbourne is a thinking city. Yeah. And I think to preach in this area, to, to, to do that. Um, and to also deconstruct some of the worldviews that people just brought. Um, yeah. I, 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 it just sort of happened. It's just an interest. So I, and I loved reading and I, I, my parents didn't have a TV for a while when I was a kid. They just got used to reading. Hmm. as a form of relaxation. And um, so I think the, the benefit of not doing seminary um, or university was that I then read what my areas of passion were and, yeah. and, and learned more. Yeah. So that's a, in your pastoral routine now, I mean, is, is reading and thinking outside just what I'm going to preach on this next Sunday. I mean, is that, is that a discipline? Is it part of your job? I mean, cause I mean, you become such a, and I don't know if people have heard of you or not, but I mean, from my vantage point, a real prominent voice in terms of helping Christians understand where they are in the cultural moment. I mean, is that something that you've been, are you released to continue to do that work? 
Yeah. So one, one thing I do is I get up early and, and you know, I, I have my like devotional time with God. And then I have another hour where I just study. And, okay. um, and, but then also like I'll read before I go to bed as well. Like, okay. uh, so just outside of it, I'm just reading as much as I can. And I just have these two sort of set things while I'll yeah. be reading, but I'll, I'll read whole, you know, yeah, I sort of read voraciously, but I'll sort of have projects and stuff like that. And just little cute. I mean, I become fascinated with, with different things like, you know, like China, I'll try to understand, get my huh. head around because I know it's so, but I just do that for fun. Like huh. it's, it's, it's a hobby. So yeah. yeah. And then it'll come out in some podcast and people are like, wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and do you preach on this stuff at church and do people enjoy it? Do you have a pretty intellectual church? Yeah, I, th- I think people do like it. Um, I mean, it's a balance always. Yeah. Uh, that you know i think people need to see it's the balance between people can see there's actual intellectual rigor here but also there's pastoral concern for someone who is not operating that you know like is not thinking at that level it's coming from a real heart issue so it's trying to balance the two i think is is key yeah. but you know that john stott thing of preaching with you know the scripture and, and the and the newspaper yeah. idea i think you know i really i really like yeah you, you guys in australia you had a recent forgive my ignorance um a pretty major political decision recently, right? Well, can you explain that a bit more? Am I- um, well, we, we did have an election recently, which, which um, this may be what you're referring to. Let me know if it's not. Um, yeah. Where basically um, it was completely predicted that the conservative, what we call the Liberal Party, which shows you how you know, different <laughs> things are. So our Liberal Party, which is the Conservative Party, um, <laughs> would get absolutely smashed in the election. And um, we actually, interestingly, had a Pentecostal prime minister for the first time who was sort of, not open about his faith in terms of pushing it in terms of policy, but, you know, was photographed worshiping with his hands up in the air at his church and everyone just thought he was going to be destroyed and end up winning, which was just fascinating. So that caused a lot of ripples around the world. Yeah. And so two years of being behind in the polls and everyone just predicting he was gone. Um, so that was, yeah, maybe, maybe that. In a sense I think so. What, what, if, if I remember correctly, it was like, you know, the, you know, so I guess back up in America, you know, Hollywood is 99.9% hyper radical left leaning. Uh, most media outlets are hyper left leaning. Um, we're surrounded by what seems to be a culture that is 90% hyper progressive. When in reality, I like to remind people that we elected Trump. Okay. So <laughs> at least yeah. 40 to 50% are not that. Um, now it, in my, from my vantage point, it seems like these, like we have a very, very loud minority of voices that would be considered, you know, radical, progressive, left, not just left leaning, but far on the left. It makes it feel like most of society's there, but I don't think most of society is there. So when Trump gets elected, people are like, what in the world's going on? I can't believe anybody would have voted for this guy. Um, and it sounds like something similar happened there where people were so shocked that there were enough conservatives um, to vote this person in. Would that be a good assessment? Yeah. I, would, I would love for your thoughts on that too. I mean, how, yeah. how do we get to a place to where we have such a loud yet, at the end of the day, kind of a minority of hyper left voices? Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting. Like Chris Hayes wrote a book on elites and I think understanding elites is, is a key factor in this. So for example, going back to Britain, say in the 18th, 19th century, you had an aristocracy. And the aristocracy lived in its own universe. Yeah, um, it had its own accents, um, fashion, <laughs> ways of doing things. But it actually wasn't huge. You know, that Oxbridge, you know, which is Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. they'd been to those institutions. They all passed through the same institutions. Everyone knew everyone. 
they controlled the Times newspaper, they controlled certain areas of, of the country. But their social, conservative and religious preferences were totally different to the rest of the population. Um, and they also saw themselves as having an enlightening function for uh, everyone else. So when we talk about that, they were handing down Victorian values. Um, and whether that's to working people, whether that's to the middle classes, whether that's to people in Australia or Africa, that was part of elite C. So I think there's this dynamic when elites find themselves at the top, you've got to, unless you just want to be Genghis Khan or something and not care, you've got to justify your place at the top with a, a moral religious framework almost. Huh. And, and Chris Bates talks in his book about how we had this shift, particularly in America and other countries, away from an inherited aristocracy, which America did have. You know, Edith Wharton sure. talked about, what was it, a 300s or 400s of the people who could fit into her ballroom in New York, up New York, you know. So there was an American aristocracy. But that then moved into what was a more diverse, arist like, like elite, yet elites always end up protecting themselves. They get the same, like the amount of people who are in the same classes at Harvard and these things is fascinating. When you, when you look at people in Silicon Valley, Hollywood, politics, et cetera, et cetera, they all know each other. And, yeah. and so they, they then have to, you know, sort of like the Davos group, you know, they all meet together, you know, and people go insane with this stuff with conspiracy theories. I'm not saying that at all. I'm more saying there's just a dynamic when you've got these groupings who are all talking to each other. The other thing I think social media, because these people then took over or inherited media, particularly social media, um, entertainment in the United States, um, that boosted their voice. Mm. So there's a boosting of the voice of a minority viewpoint. Mm. Um, and so I think that's why. Now, I don't know. I honestly don't think that the public is like, here's this group of diehard conservatives. I think what we're seeing is a pushback against elites. Um, increasingly we're seeing um, a coming together. So Italy is, is fascinating, um, you know, with Five Star, which you've got a left-wing populist party is in a coalition with a, you know, the Liga Nord, a right-wing populist party under Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. So actually you're seeing it's more about populists um, and people who feel left behind, hmm. um, whether on the left or right. So there's more just a general frustration which where things are going and inequality. And particularly... Globalization raises the level of, of wealth for people in other countries, but isn't the best for working people in Western countries. And that's the bit that people have missed out. So there's a pushback against what they see as elites are leaving them behind, hence the immigration pushback as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. Do you, I mean, do you, can that uh, loud minority of elite voices, again, Hollywood, uh, media outlets, uh, social media platforms, like you referenced, I forgot that one, but I mean, that's uh, there's not a social media platform that's not led by very left-leaning or radical left people, you know? And even, um, there's a massive debate, I don't know how aware of it you are, you know, the people being kicked off of Twitter or YouTube almost, in almost every case, seems to be kicked off for right-wing violation violations from a white right wing perspective when people on a left wing perspective can get away with all kinds of things you know you have yeah um what where do you do you, do you see that going somewhere will that end up cannibalizing itself in two five ten years because now when uh, when any ideology whether it's the far right or far left when you have such a narrow circle 
that you must match up to. The second you step outside of that ideology, you're done. And there's no re here's the thing with secular right or secular left wing ideologies or, tr or tribalism. There's no, there's no redemption. You know, you have um, several people that might make an offhanded comment on Twitter that could be possibly interpreted as maybe slightly racist. Um, and they're done for life for life. <laughs> um, and so there's no redemption uh, at all in, in that kind of scheme. And then the same thing goes for radical right-wing people. You know, you step outside, you, you don't toe the line on this issue or that issue and you're done and there's no way to get back into the tribe. From my vantage point, it seems like that kind of tribalism will just end up cannibalizing itself. Like it can't sustain itself with that kind of rigorous um, legalism, whether it's a left-wing legalism or right wing legalism. I mean, I, and again, I'm just thinking out loud and, and from a place of a lot yeah. of ignorance. So <laughs> am I yeah, at yeah. all touching on anything or have you thought through this, you know, where yes. does this radical left or right end up leading? Yeah. Um, I, I think there is a tends to be a bit of a pattern. There's a pattern here that we saw in the 1930s um, in, in Europe. So basically what you had is all across Europe, the center struggled to hold, um, particularly with the shocks of the great depression. And we've had the global financial crisis. And I think a lot of that, this is this playing out. Huh. Um, and, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, you know, like, I mean, literally, I think it was Timothy Geithner, um, you know, talked about, you know, he was in, you know, one of the people in charge of the US economy that we were like, the US was like two or three days away from the cash machines, ATMs being out of money. Like it was, it was intense. Like, huh. um, so what tended to happen in Europe is you had these tactics that then the further left and right instigate it. Now they were mostly on the street. So you had Bolsheviks, um, radical leftists, communists who basically started going into the street in leather jackets and doing, you know, attacks and stuff like that. You then had the Freikorps, which was like the German soldiers who were then defending. And these two like groups got more and more, they copied each other more and more and more and, mm. and, and, you know, like made each other more extreme. I think that's happening politically. So, you know, I think, I think I don't, th the left thing, is weaker than it seems because actually what you've got going on is you've got your more establishment left figures. Let's say Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden represent. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're sort of left leaning. They have some sort of center left. They're really center left with some socially progressive values. So maybe it's like gay marriage or whatever. Right. Um, but then the, their threat is not from the right. Their threat is further from the left. So what people don't realize is your biggest threat politically is not from the people in opposition to you. It's the more extreme version of your position. Huh. So what happened with the Republicans is everyone was like, oh, George W. Bush is, is a Nazi war criminal. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's like romantic pictures of him and Obama, like, and everyone's missing the good old days of the, you know, the Trump inauguration. <laughs> so what you had is the Republican Party was, in a sense, subverted from within, from the right. Same thing happens in Britain. The Brexit right subverts it within. The British Labour Party was subverted by the hard left of Jeremy Corbyn. That will happen to the Democrats. That is happening to the Democrats. So this, this current um, 2020 election, you've got an insurgent Democrat left who are more extreme on certain things. So yeah. they have more of a... So, I mean, Elizabeth Warren is talking about breaking up big tech. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, um, AOC is talking about, you know, she's getting rid of social media. So they're looking at, I would say that social media has been more in the centre-left position because they still want to hold economic power, but you've got now a more insurgent left. So for example, even in sexuality, you would have... You know, you've seen this within the trans movement. Um, we just had a split in the New York Pride Parade um, between a hard anti-corporate 
gay left who are more pushing into trans stuff versus the more mainstream corporate friendly um, um, gay movement. So you're seeing this everywhere, this yeah. splitting into more extremes. You're even seeing it, and we can get really nerdy, it's even happening within far right movements are splitting. No, one, no one's seeing this, but fascism is completely mutating and creating new forms. Um, yeah, so that, that's all happening. So you're right. So we go to that extremes and then what you tend to look in history, there's a point of exhaustion yeah. where it just gets so exhausting and then people tend to return to the middle after a lot of carnage. So do you think, so, so my main, I don't even know if you have a clue who I am or what I do, but I, and you don't need to, but I, I, you know, my main world right now is LGBTQ related questions and the church and culture, specifically the T or gender. And I'm fascinated at how LGB um, questions, both politically and religiously are somewhat left of center. Um, But the, some of the, some, not all, obviously, but some of the radical transgender activists are so far to the left, and now they've poked the bear of the radical feminists. And so now you have two extremely liberal, anti-Christian, anti-whatever um, people that are just, the ideologies are just clashing, you know? And it's, it's, um, it's fascinating to see, well, it's fascinating, but also troubling to see how this is affecting children. And the second you know, a boy exhibits any kind of feminine kind of traits. You know, he's pushed to identify as trans or non-binary and vice versa for biological females. And, you know, and, and, and it seems like people are resurrecting these kind of gender stereotypes. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's such a complicated mess. And yet there's been a, a lot of people really damaged and affected by this on so many levels. And, uh, you know, I, I think in this cultural moment, 2019, it's like, I, where's this going to end? Because we are we are pushing up against, you know, Orwell's 1984, almost to the T. In fact, just a few hours ago, I watched a video of an, uh, prof- a high school teacher in Aberdeen where I, where I spent three years and somebody caught it on um, video where a student simply said, I think there are two genders. I think people are male or yes. female. Did you see this? Yes. Yes. And the teacher said, don't you kind of like, don't you dare question the authorities? I mean, it was almost a quote from Orwell's 1984 book, which I, I just read. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this could literally be in that book where you question the party. And now he's being kicked out of the classroom for saying that there's two genders, which, you know, he's like, yeah, it was fascinating. But I'm like, where does this end up? This can't, this has to either cannibalize itself, recapitulate, start over, deep breath and maybe move forward or we just end up just collapsing as a society. It seems like, like (laughs) I I think the big disruption, which no one is watching, particularly in the United States is that what everyone's failing to see. So let me give you an example. So um, this year at the Academy Awards, which increasingly has pushed into an advocacy around these issues this year in China, the live feed in China was censored heavily any LGBT references were censored by Chinese state TV and they did it very sophisticatedly. Um, huh. I'm like, what well, in five years, cause basically China owns Hollywood. Really? Um, totally. Like <laughs> Hollywood's got no money. Like it's all foreign money now. Um, wow. Uh, increasingly China is, is doing globalization in a very different way, which is through debt and lending of money. Um, you've got huge, um, investment from the Gulf states in the United States, owning many ports, um, you know, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, China 
is increasingly, uh, and Russia, are trying to increasingly realizing they can't control their internal internet. And they're now talking about controlling the outside internet. So there's a great firewall of China controlling the outside internet. Hmm. Um, uh, some of these forums that people like Elizabeth Warren uh, investigating around some of the hate speech stuff online. If you see who's funding these forums, it's actually the Chinese government. China is very invested at the moment in creating internet censorship and controls. Wow. Now, this is just me speculating. So, in ten years, does the China are, are those references being censored live, actually at the ceremony? Um, so, what I'm saying by this is that no one's recognizing in the U.S. that in ten years, at the current rate, China's GDP will be double that of the U.S. Now, I'm not saying war, or, you know, there's people who talk about the feudicities trap or whatever. I'm not saying that there's an inevitable war between the US. But what we are going to see um, is increasing non-Western intervention in the politics and culture wars of the United States. Really? The 2016 election saw that by, with Russia. Russia, um, yeah, a number of the Black Lives Matters main websites were actually, they were found they were Russian. Um, uh, there was an amazing thing where there was a pro-Islamic group in Texas and an anti-Islamic group in Texas, two Facebook pages, who got people to organise for a downtown demonstration. Um, and they then were discovered they both run out of St. Petersburg, those two accounts. So that's not, hear me right, I just want to make, I'm not saying that Black Lives Matter is a completely thing made right. by, by, by Russia. All that, all that Russia saw, and they didn't do a whole lot, it really, in the last US election, what they did was boost current cultural war stuff already happening. So increasingly, you're seeing, you're seeing China, you're already seeing the Gulf states wading into all of this. So what people don't realize is most of those countries, Putin literally came out the other day and said, liberalism in the West is dead. Like it's dying. Like people are seeing this. If you guys don't get it yet, you will soon. Essentially is what he's saying. Um, China is against all this stuff. Um, it, so so, so let, let, me, start- let, me, let me just uh, have you repeat that because I, I, this is my ignorance on these just on globalization in general. So are you saying Russia and China uh, have an anti kind of Western liberal, more, I don't want to say conservative to make it sound like they're, you know, toe to toe with kind of American conservatism, but they're, they're not on board with Western liberal values that keep getting more and totally. more and more progressive. So, you know, you've got the Gulf states, the Gulf states, which are extremely powerful, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, which have huge investment in think tanks in Washington. Then they're, they're not down with this agenda. They actually, at the end of the day, they're very conservative Islamic countries. Uh, China is not at all down with Western liberalism um, at all. You hmm. know, it, it is at the end of the day a socially conservative country with a communist party. Um, Russia has very deliberately in the Eastern um, European world and with a lot of other countries positioned itself against Western social liberalism. Um, you currently have in the EU, the Visegrad states, which is Hungary, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, Austria, have all gone, put in right-wing governments. And one of the big platforms is creating, um, I think it was Viktor Orban, the president or prime minister, whatever it is, of Hungary said, we're creating an illiberal democracy. Um, and they're creating a block in the EU against this. Uh, you know, African Union, yeah. forms of Pacific nations, you listen to these these people, they're saying, hang on, we don't want this. We do not yeah. want this. So you've got not just a, an insurgency within the West, but you've got actually a global insurgency against a lot of this stuff. So it's it's a fascinating parallel in some ways mm. to what, what I think the irony in all of this is, if you look at some of these 
leftist ideas, where do they emerge from? They emerge from Western neoliberal institutions. What so many people have missed in the West, and I would say people politically in America is, why is it that there's, there's, you know, I argue Tinder is a coming together of the left and right. And people don't see it. So it's a left social, sexual ethic with hyper-capitalist right wing. <laughs> and that's actually the reality of where we're at. We're actually at a reality that the far right, the, the right of say the Republican party and the left of the Democratic party end up achieving the same thing, which is atomized floating individuals devoid of any historical, um, you know, antecedents all come together through one is, is deconstructed by the, the deconstruction of social norms. The other by hyper-capitalism deconstructing everything. Yeah. So, so, you know, like I see like universities in the United States are completely bizarre places. They're, yeah. they're, they're super left wing, but then they're sponsored by big tech, big corporations and people go, <laughs> Oh, well, that's a contradiction. What if it's actually not? So out of those Western institutions, they now have their new missionary mandate to the world, which is positions itself as anti-Western, but actually is, still trying to tell the rest of the world what to do with their, their social values. So it's another, you could argue it's another, it's post-colonial colonialism. Well, this is, that's fascinating. First of all, I'm going to go back and re-listen to the last 10 minutes of this episode probably several times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you, you said a couple times already, you're not a conspiracy theorist. And I know some people might say, I don't know, but do, do you have any, um, real quick, do you have any resources that you can recommend to people that are like, I don't know who Mark is. I don't know if I trust him, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious now. What would you encourage them to go read in terms of, especially like China controlling Hollywood, the anti hyper progressivism of the West. Um, are there, is it, are you pulling from tons of different resources or is there a couple tons different- of different resources? Um, uh, I mean, probably my book, strange days, which was my last book I wrote is really my book on global politics and looking oh. at it through a theological, theological lens. I got to check that. I haven't read that. Okay. Strange. Um, which is basically the idea that the, almost the old Testament temple ideas of sacred space, whether you're in and out, yeah. that that can be applied to the entire world. Interesting. Oh, that's, so that's the battle between yeah. nationalism and globalism. Yeah. Who's in, who's out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sacred boundaries. Well, you made a statement uh, and we're, we're going to wrap this up in just a few minutes. Um, but uh, you know, col- colonialism 2.0. And I saw this happen a few months ago. And I don't know how much you know about this, but the United Methodist Church had a big conference on sexuality. And I, th- I believe it was last February. And one thing I, I really appreciate about the UMC is they've, they've done a such a wonderful job at not just doing m- missionary work or overseas missions, but actually empowering and valuing the voices of people outside of America. Well, there was a bit of blowback because, you know, 80% or so of American UMC leaders would be very progressive in their sexual ethic. But when they invited 30% of, you know, 30% of the bishops there were African and 48% were global leaders. And they actually voted to reaffirm traditional marriage. And and I think the American UMC church was just all up in arms, but some of the speeches made by white quote unquote progressive bishops sounded eerily similar to like almost like a racist, I would say racist, but like a very colonial-ish condescending kind of perspective on these African leaders who really haven't, you know, they're just, you know, they haven't done their homework on a true sexual ethic. They're not up to speed. It was almost so condescending on 
these African voices and they hear the African voices push back and basically say what you said, like, this feels like colonialism 2.0. We don't need your Western, Western enlightenment on telling us how to read the Bible. Thank you very much. We're doing okay. And, and, um, it seems like that, that might be a microcosm to everything you're, you're, you're saying. I mean, that was on a church level with sexuality, but, um, oh, absolutely. Like, like it's, it's, it's this sense that the West is still being the West. Yeah. And I think it's, it's cloaked in, in an anti self-hatred. There's an element of self-hatred, like the West is horrible. So when are you going to tell everyone the West is horrible? I mean, I, I got this a little bit early days. I was, you know, in my twenties and I, and I went and spoke and I was probably a bit more like, let's deconstruct everything in the West, probably a bit more crazy uh radical in my younger days giving this talk and i spoke to a group of uh, it was a church it was a men's thing and it was i was the only white guy in the room it was people from all different countries outside of the west um asian african indian you know and i got up there and they were just so nice with me like one just guy goes hey listen um just want to know have you lived outside the west do you really know what it's like outside the west and i'm like <laughs> I visited and, and they just very gently just were like, okay, buddy, we lived through this. We lived through this revolution. Yeah. We know it's like blah, blah. And I just felt so chastened. And um, that was sort of, uh, you know, the, the radical, you know, Western guy just got, yeah, taken to school a little bit that day. So I think, I think, I think that's, yeah, th there is a reality where we're still doing what we've always done, yeah. but we mask it. Um, and, you know, that's what I say. Are, are the new left, visions coming out of the favelas of brazil or from poor coffee farmers in kenya it's not mm. they're, they're coming from the most powerful neoliberal elite west institutions elite institutions of the west interesting wow uh so real quick uh, mark sayers thinks.com is the website if you're interested in uh, learning more about mark sayers uh, a number of books. You said you've written seven. You're coming out with your eighth book. Uh, your last one that has been published is Strange Days, which has the coolest cover, by the way. Um, yes. Is it is it playing on Stranger Things, the, the TV show? Um, or <laughs> well, apparently, apparently. Uh, so, so it was fascinating because we wrote it during the Trump election, and we didn't know which way it was going to go. So, yeah. apparently, I think it's actually Trump Tower in Chicago. I had nothing to do with this. Um, Yes, yeah, that's Trump Tower in Chicago is apparently the right. Oh, no way. Behind. So I, I see several books with Moody, a, a few of your early yeah. ones with Tommy Nelson. Have you worked with uh, Drew Dick, the editor over at yes. Moody? Is yeah. that your... I, I just, I haven't met with him, but I do know. I just, I just had coffee with, or lunch with him in Portland. Oh, um, he at some stage this year. Yeah. Yeah. He's wonderful. He's, Oh, I, I love that guy, man. He, I, you, you seem to think very alike real quick. Can you give a final word on and everything we've been talking about? I imagine if anybody is a, is a theological, spiritual pastoral leader listening to this, which was quite a few pastors that listen to this. Um, they might be overwhelmed a little bit. I mean, you've, you've gone way outside, like, you know, exegeting Romans, whatever, but like, yes. uh, can you give a final word, encouragement, maybe even challenge to um, let's just say p pastors in, well, not just in America, just, just pastors of, you know, churches, you know, after hearing all this, what are some things that they can and maybe should do to try to prepare themselves to pastor in the coming days? Um, the first thing is God has sort of called me and used my strange brain to help other people understand this stuff and interpret so that they don't have to. Um, like I don't feel people need to go and read, you know, policy statements from the Chinese Communist Party to understand how to <laughs> preach that next sermon. Um, so... Thomas Kelly wrote a book called Testament of Devotion. And he talked about the fact that we're sort of called to singly focus on God's spirit in us and, and like ask what's the one or two things that we're called to do. And I think that's really important. Okay. And I think also like um, where we're heading is there's all this 
cultural chaos, but there's intense personal chaos. Huh. Anxiety, this creates tremendous anxiety in the individual. Um, where sexually, you know, pornography is in, in, in invaded people's personal worlds, choice anxiety. We live in the hyper Protestantism of you, the church of YouTube, I think as, as my friend David Kinnaman calls it. Um, this is affecting people. Like this is, this is the people in your church. There's no longer can you hide from in a Christian ghetto because the phone brings the world into your pocket. Um, so what I've realized is my friend Terry Walling says, his mantra is personal renewal precedes corporate change. Hmm. And there's an element that I think at this time, it's Isaiah's rebuilding of broken down places. But what if those broken down places are actually in us? Hmm. And what if the starting point is how you walk daily with God? All I feel all of the, what, what I feel like what's happening is actually the powers and principalities are being humiliated. And that's big tech. That's the Republican party. That's the Chinese communist party in Hong Kong. As we speak, um, that is possibly large parts of American evangelicalism. Hmm. Um, that's the Me Too movement. It's, 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 it's all these things are tearing down what we look to for sustenance, security, and meaning outside of God. Hmm. So what an incredible opportunity to, to meet Christ face to face, to put all our trust in him. Hmm. Do that in your personal life. That overflows. And that's what people are looking for in pastors at the moment, real people walking with God and that overflowing, not from a sense of expertise, ideas. I don't want at the end of the day, people go, wow, Mark knows all this stuff or he's a smart guy. I want people to see someone who walks humbly with God. And so I would encourage anyone to do that. That's the cut through thing that's going to work at this moment, humility and the presence of God. Gosh, what a great word to end on. That it applies obviously not just to pastors, but any Christian who wants to take their faith seriously. So Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. Again, it's MarkSayersThinks.com. Uh, check out his books, check out his blogs, his podcasts, his ministry. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Mark. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you want to support Theology in the Raw, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw for and support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And you get access to premium content in return. So thank you so much to all of my Patreon supporters. You truly keep me going and keep the show going. If you want to join the Patreon uh, Theology in the Raw community and be part of the team, then go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. So thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time on Theology in the Raw.